you're looking for a happy place, you have found it. Hello and greetings and welcome to Live Happy Now. I am your host, J.R. Houston. This is the podcast dedicated to bringing you closer to your peak happiness through powerful, positive psychology, relatable insights, and things that you can do in your daily life that will lead you closer to that peak happiness. We are, of course, brought to you by Live Happy Magazine, available on newsstands everywhere. You can find it in your grocery store. You can find it in your local bookstore. It's all right there for you. You can also find it in the uh, Apple App Store. Our digital edition is there, as well as the Google Play Store. For those of you with Android devices, really no excuse not to pick up a copy of the magazine. And uh, if you are surfing online to find the app or the digital edition, you can also surf on over to our partner's website. That is LifeReimagined.org, and they've got all kinds of stuff there for you as well, stuff that you can try and things you can go through to help bring you closer to your true happiness. You know what they say. They say, as you awaken to the power of happiness, so do your dreams. So what's next for you? Find out more at lifereimagined.org. On this episode of Live Happy Now, we're going to hear from Christine Carter, someone we told you we were excited to talk to, and we still are. She's a sociologist and senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and author of The Sweet Spot. You're going to hear that phrase a lot in this interview. And Dr. Carter looks at how to find your groove at home and at work work in this episode of Live Happy Now. Let's jump right into your definition of the sweet spot and how do you how does one find theirs? To me the sweet spot if you can imagine a Venn diagram is the overlap between where we have our greatest ease or least resistance in our life, the least stress, and where we have our greatest power. How we get there, we have to build great swaths of ease and strength in our lives and play in the center of those things. Christine, how did you come to this research area of the sweet spot? How did this all happen? Well, I was a wreck. (laughs) I was actually, I shouldn't say I was a wreck. I I was, um, I I was super successful actually. And I, I kind of had hit a place in my life where I thought I was at the height of my career. I was the executive director of the greater good science center at UC Berkeley. I just, published Raising Happiness, and it was doing incredibly well. I had a full coaching practice, and I was flying all over to speak. I had a new online class platform. I just was going gangbusters in my career and was really happy with it all. You know, my life was um, very full, and I was really felt like I was playing to my strengths, and, and in fact, I was. But I was tired all the time. I was really exhausted. And it wasn't just that I was sort of not really getting enough sleep or exercise. It was that I got every virus on every airplane. I was always a little bit sick. So I was just run down and it reached a point where I am being flown all over the world to speak about how to be happy. And I have been studying productivity and elite performance and positive emotions and happiness for more than a decade. Everywhere I go, I had a low grade, but still strep throat infection for 18 months. I just could not kick it. The low point came for me when I developed a kidney infection. It was really painful, but I, you know, it happened over the weekend and my, I had to go to the hospital and, and the doctor came out and said, 
you don't really have anything to worry about. Um, we're going to, you know, we're going to give you some IV antibiotics and you're going to be on your way in an hour or so. And my thought was, oh my God, you cannot release me. You have to admit me. I am so tired. I cannot go home and take care mm. of my children and do all the things I have to do. I cannot get on a plane tomorrow morning. Mm. I was having hospital fantasies. I was having a fantasy that they would admit me and I would get to just sleep in the hospital for a couple of weeks. That didn't happen. The irony was not lost on me. And I had, you know, it was really actually a great moment for me because... I realized what I was doing and I felt this sort of tremendous empathy for the other working parents that I've been hearing from and had this sense that if I couldn't figure it out, nobody could. I, I, I wrote the book, you know, we teach what we need to learn. I just, I had all the information. The science is, has been fascination for me for a very long time. I was very familiar with what the tools were. I just wasn't walking the talk, right? So I needed to road test everything, work, you know, a little bit more deeply with my clients. And it, I've come out the other end. I'm in really, you know, I'm in really great shape. So how has the sweet spot, the practices of the sweet spot in your research, how have you reimagined your life, so to speak? A lot of things shifted. So I like to think of our lives like interlocking gears. And some of the gears are really big and some of the gears are really small. A lot of times when we realize we need to make a change in our life, we go right for the big gears. We think, okay, I'm going to have a baby. I'm going to get divorced. I'm going to move to Chicago. I'm going to whatever. For me, I decided to approach this and I like people to approach this by looking at the small gears first instead of thinking about quitting your job, thinking about what are the little tiny shifts that you can make in your life to bring more ease or more strength into your life. Because when we shift the small gears, when we tweak those little ones, the big ones start to move as well. So for me, I needed to play more towards ease, right? I was getting a lot of hits. I was playing to my strength. But if you watch a baseball player get a hit outside of his or her sweet spot, what you see is that the bat often breaks, right? You can see the impact to the shoulder, to the wrist. If you watch slow motion video, you can actually see the bat bend. It's quite incredible. So for me, I needed to shift more towards ease, building more ease into my life. I'm really fascinated because what you're describing as kind of your tipping point about I've got to make a change, things have got to change, and and you've got the wherewithal, you've got the smarts, you, you know, you're in the field, like you're recognizing this, and what's so extraordinary about what you're sharing is so many millions and millions of people feel this but they have no outlet and to express it the way you just did. I, I would like to know some of the things that you did. And, and of course, these are some of the prescriptive things that you teach others. In general, I needed to learn to take breaks. And it's not just so that I could recharge, but it's also because we generate a lot of creative insight. We're able to, our brain works differently when we aren't focused all the time. We've become a culture of, we think we're distracted, but even as we're distracted, we're trying constantly to focus our brain. And when we just go stare into space, something happens in our brain and it's not nothing, right? The, the unconscious part of our brain is much smarter and much faster. It processes information at about 11 
million bits per second compared to 40 bits per second of our conscious brain. So taking breaks allows us to access a much more powerful part of our brain. You know, I actually say it was taking recess because there has to be some joy Hmm. in the whole thing for the most powerful part of our brain to really kick in. Another thing that I did was really hone my habits, right? So this is also working with the unconscious part of our brain. But, you know, we have a very powerful autopilot. When we have to make decisions, the same decisions again and again all day about what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear, or whether we're going to shower before or after we have our coffee, these are things that in my life were not important, but I was still using up willpower to do. And we have this rich neuroscience around how to get into a habit. It's like writing the code for the computer in your brain, right? I just had to like sit down and say, this is the way my mornings are going to go. I'm not going to make any decisions. <laughs> it's just going to happen. That brings tremendous ease into your life. So the third thing I think is the most important for most people, and that's learning how to reduce overwhelm or what researchers call cognitive overload. You know, we feel so busy all the time and there are little triggers that cause a sense of overwhelm, which puts us into fight or flight, which moves us out of our sweet spot kind of automatically. So a lot, I have a lot to say around technology here because we're triggering a state of overwhelm with our technology when we can be using technology to generate ease and power, not necessarily to pull us out of that. Is the whole notion of finding your strengths or playing where you're strongest, is it, is that the same as a sweet spot? Are they different? It's different because your strengths are only half of the equation. The sweet spot is your strengths but it's your strengths where you have the least stress or the least resistance. It's not just where you're strong. That's what I was doing, but there was so much stress, right? I, I mean, my career had completely taken off, but there was so much resistance in my life. I was so tired. There was no ease. So the sweet spot is where you have that ease, right? Where the bat isn't going to bend. It's not going to splinter. It's not going to break. You find that place, that last step that I was just talking about, about reducing overwhelm is really about bringing ease into your life so that when you are playing to your strengths, there you don't meet so much resistance. I love your notion that the myth of more is the greatest lie of our current culture. Share more about that. It is. You know, I'm trained as a sociologist and I'm so interested in the cultural beliefs that create suffering, basically, right? And where they're true and where they're not. And this sense that more would be better, more money, more stuff, more work, so that we have more prestige. We just have this underlying assumption that more would be better than what we already have. And it's not true. Where I think that we get into trouble is where we see busyness. Busyness is the effect of this more would be better kind of a thing. More activities for our kids, more enrichment, more exercise for us, more whatever it is. We assume that more is going to be better. It makes us incredibly busy. Now, the sort of corollary to the lie that more is better is the lie that busyness is a sign of productivity or importance or significance. First of all, neither of these things is true. We know that perceived busyness is absolutely not correlated with productivity or success. And we know this intuitively, like the science bears this out. But we also, of course, I mean, you could probably think of 10 people who perceive themselves to be really busy who are talking all the time about how busy and overwhelmed they are. And they're just actually 
not that successful in life. To us, they just look like they're spinning their wheels a little bit. And the reverse is also true. When we look at our great wisdom teachers, the wisest people doing the most important and significant work, they don't talk to you about how busy they are. <laughs> because we say we're busy when we're kind of unhappy, when we're we're not fulfilling our own needs. We're sacrificing our own well-being and happiness for what we think we should be doing or what somebody else expects us to be doing or what our workplace demands of us. That state of busyness and overwhelm that comes from more, 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 more. I can multitask. I can be very busy and important. It creates what I was talking about earlier, the state of cognitive overload. That's what researchers call it. When our brain goes into cognitive overload, suddenly you can't think as clearly as you could before. You certainly can't plan very well or organize your thoughts. You become less verbally fluent. You start to have a hard time with creative tasks like solving a problem. Certainly, you're going to have a really hard time coming up with an innovative solution to a problem. You, you become more rigid in your thinking, less resilient in the face of change or any form of difficulty. We have a hard time accessing social information, remembering the name of our daughter's boss or our boss's daughter, for example, which can be really important for us in our workplaces and in our relationships. And then we have a really hard time controlling our emotions. Any working parent knows this when they're trying to work and their kids are mom, 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 lashing out that we see. There, I was just looking at a study yesterday about how irritable parents are when they're trying to be on their phones or doing any sort of work around their kids. You know, science of the blazingly obvious, we are not very nice as parents when we're trying to take care of our children and work. That's cognitive overload at work. Talking to you is making me realize, you know, geez, you know what? The biggest laugh of all is the laugh at ourselves at realizing this busyness is craziness. Yeah. <laughs> it is, and it's it's making us less productive. I mean, that's the irony there. I mean, so when we really start to examine these myths, first of all, when we embrace the idea that more is not necessarily better, when we step back from that lie, what do we usually see? What we usually experience is that we already have enough. We allow ourselves to experience a sense of abundance in many areas in our lives. So abundance is not a quantity of something. We think of abundance, it's a felt sense of sufficiency. It's a quality of life that we cannot experience if our predominant assumption is that more would be better. Here again, we have this great irony. We can't experience abundance when we believe more is going to be better. Reject that lie and suddenly it's like, okay, let's see. Now I always, I direct people towards finding the minimum effective dose of everything. I want to explore that with you. Yeah, go ahead. Give us the, the minimum effective dose. Once you're on board with the fact that more is not necessarily better, I like people to ask, would less be better? And in many cases, less can actually be more effective. So this, the min minimum effective dose comes from the medical industry. Doctors always try and prescribe the minimum dose of any drug that is going to be effective for their patients. Because what happens is if you prescribe too much, it becomes toxic to people. So what I found in my own life, and I think many people relate to, is that I had toxic levels of certain activities in my life. I hadn't found what dose of number of meetings I would go to at the Greater Good Science Center or the amount of time I spent on email or even the amount of time I was spending exercising. I didn't have the effective dose. It's looking for an area of 
your life, which is become toxic and then reducing, reducing, reducing to failure. So when you, you do so little, you're actually not effective because then you know where your threshold is. This is an experimental process and most of us are very out of touch with how little of anything we can get away with. Email, I think, is very low-hanging fruit for most people, especially if you're a knowledge worker. We know from the research that just letting yourself check your email all day long, that creates tremendous stress and tension in our bodies. So checking your email all day long, you're out of the sweet spot. There's really not enough ease. For your given job, how little can you check your email? What is the minimum effective dose? I mean, we could talk about checking behaviors and all the reasons why it creates stress and tension for us. But for most human beings, checking three times a day is going to reduce that stress and tension. Also, when they've done this in studies in office workers, what they find is that people actually respond to more emails, checking less frequently, their responses have fewer errors. So they're not reacting to their email. They're just responding to it. So what I personally have found is that I do not need to check my email three times per day. Now, sometimes when I'm procrastinating and I've got a lot open, I I just leave it open and I check all day. And then I just notice like, oh, here I'm doing it again. It's so very tempting. It's very addictive. There's a lot of reasons why we feel inclined to do it. But just clear out my email one time a day. And it can be very frustrating for people because they don't get a response the same day. It depends on what time they email me. But you know what? It's really effective for me. So for me, ease was a big issue. And the more I'm in my sweet spot, the better I do. Aren't we kind of like programmed with a negative bias already mm-hmm, in us when we, mm-hmm. when we hit particularly, the world? Particularly with memory. So our brain has sort of developed from an evolutionary standpoint so that we remember the things that are threats to us. But that can be kind of anything that is negative. And so we tend to have this Velcro for negative experiences in our brain. But our brain is like Teflon for positive experiences. We have them, but they easily slip away because until this era that we're in, there wasn't as much evolutionary sense around remembering the positive. That does not mean that we can't change this in our brain, that we can't do things to help the positive sink in and influence our outlook. I actually think it's even easier than that. I don't really worry about my positive memories as much as I do about the ratio that I have between positive and negative emotions in any given day because it's just not that hard to foster positive emotions. The importance of it is that when we have a ratio of positive to negative Emotions are experienced in any given day uh, that is three positive to one negative or higher, our brain starts to operate in a very different way. That is a whole different level, correct me if I'm wrong, of mindfulness, awareness, and consciousness, really, to bring that into your life. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a self-awareness kind of a thing to notice you know, I, I, it almost doesn't even have to be that complicated. It does take a certain level of, of self-awareness to, to say, all right, I'm having a really hard time right now. So it's affecting the way my brain functions. I'm going to be more impulsive. I'm going to have a harder time recovering from stress. I'm not going to be as creative. You know, life is tremendously hard for even the luckiest among us. We all have difficulties. So when we notice 
going through a period of time in which our, that ratio is going to drop. We need to shore ourselves up. So I recommend that people have a happiness playlist so that when they are having a hard time, which is a guarantee, and it's not about not feeling the negative. It's about fostering more positive emotions to bolster that ratio. So the higher your ratio, it's not that you experience fewer negative events or emotions. It's that you experience them for less time. We don't get stuck in a downward spiral of negative emotions. Uh, what is your, your own personal uh, trigger point when you're having that, you know, that negative thing? What, what are the things that you say or do emotionally that say, okay, I gotta, I'm going to flip this around? Uh, you don't want to resist the negative. So I do have a happiness playlist, which is not just a music list, but I have a list of things that foster positive emotion in my life. So for me, a gratitude practice is a really important part of it. I do that daily, not just when I'm having a hard time, but I go back to it and maybe spend more time with it when things get difficult. Inspiration is a real source of positive emotion for me. We sometimes forget that inspiration, awe, elevation are really powerful positive emotions. So for me, I have poems that always inspire me. I've got people that whose books I like to read. So I have sort of combed through a list of positive emotions. They're the most powerful for me. And I have a list of actual behaviors. It's written out. It is not something that I have to come up with while I'm not feeling well because Mm. we don't do that. We don't sit around and think about what is going to make us feel better. I know. So on my list is make eye contact and chat with the barista. Mm-hmm. I know like making eye contact with strangers, giving a dollar to a homeless person, feeding somebody else's meter, doing things like that. It, when I notice I'm having a hard time, I go to the list. All right, listen, I want to wrap up this session with getting your top three easy to implement strategies that can help, you know, our listeners reduce overwhelm in their lives. What are your top three? Be? Well, I'm going to stick with the same theme. My number one would be find the thing that most easily makes you happy and find a way to make that really easily accessible for you. Number two, I would say using technology more strategically and very specifically taking email off your phone. So just not letting yourself check your email on your phone for a little while. Picking mm-hmm. one arena of your life to isolate from technology. And number three would be to find a way every day to connect with another human being, whether it's a friend or a stranger, whether it's just a smile or actually listening to somebody going through uh, a hard time to to make it a daily goal to connect with another human being. It's a huge, huge component of our overall sense of ease and strength. That's some good stuff from Christine Carter as she talked to our own Kim Yancey right here on Live Happy Now. If you would like a copy of the book, and I suggest you grab one, we've also got a free download of the Sweet Spot Manifesto. It's Christine Carter's The Sweet Spot. You can visit our website, livehappy.com slash sweet spot. We are so excited that you have made us a part of your day, and we look forward to talking to you again very soon. And you can reach out to us by finding us um, various places on Twitter at LiveHappy, Facebook.com slash LiveHappy. You can search My Live Happy on Instagram or you can shoot us an email, podcast at LiveHappy.com. Bottom line is we want to hear from you. 
Thanks again for joining us. For Kim Yancey, for Christine Carter, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long, and remember to always live happy.